This is an economy of one, your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Good evening and welcome again to an economy of one. I am your host, Gary Rathbun. Our website, aneconomyofone.com. Joining me now is Dinesh D'Souza. He's a prolific author. His books include Stealing America, What My Experience with Criminal Gangs Taught Me About Obama, Hillary, and the Democratic Party, and America, Imagine a World Without Her. He's a filmmaker of the breakout documentary in 2016, Obama's America, and this year's number one political documentary, Hillary's America. He's a former policy analyst in the Reagan White House, Dinesh also served as the John M. Olin Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and president of King's College in New York City. I wanted to talk to him about his new book, The Big Lie, Exposing the Nazi Roots of the American Left. Dinesh, welcome back to An Economy of One. Uh, hey, it's great to be back on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, read through your book, and uh, you know, I didn't really appreciate the subtitle, Exposing the Nazi Roots of the American Left until I read the book. And the American left has had, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, kind of fascist tendencies for a long, long time, haven't they? Well, this is what really surprised me. Uh, and I have to say, as an author, I mean, this is my 16th book. And, um, you know, normally when I go into a book, I generally have a very good idea of not only the central thesis I'm going to argue, but the main lines of evidence that I'm going to use. Mm -hmm. In this particular book, however, uh, all I knew about are sort of parallels between things going on in the United States, things going on in fascist Italy and Nazi Germany. And I thought, wow, let me just develop these parallels. But the more I looked into it, I realized, wait a minute, I, I actually have grossly underestimated the degree of intimacy between the American left and the Democratic Party on the one hand and the fascist Nazis on the other. The title of the book, The Big Lie, and as you know, and, and many of us know, the big lie phrase came out of uh, Hitler's Mein Kampf, his his uh, autobiography that he, that he wrote. Explain to us what's the big lie. What what do you mean by the big lie? Well, what Hitler meant by the big lie um, is that small lies can be easily detected or caught, whereas big lies, because they're so big, you can't get your head around them. And so Hitler was basically saying it's easier to sell a big lie than a small lie. Now, the big lie that I'm talking about is the lie that fascism and Nazism are phenomena of the right. Uh, this lies behind the, uh, the allegation that Trump is a fascist, the GOP and the conservatives are the neo-Nazi party. All of this is based on the premise that fascism and Nazism are right-wing phenomena. And I show that that is not true. Fascism and Nazism in their ideology, in their history, as well as in their tactics, are firmly on the left. One of the things you, you talk about in the book is a term called transference. And it's a way that the left and the Democrats hide things about themselves. Is that is that part of the big lie? I mean, they're accusing... President Trump of being a fascist. They're accusing uh, conservatives, Republicans of being fascist. And they're doing that by practicing fascist techniques, aren't they? 
Right. So, see, notice that there's a there's a double lie uh, there. It's right. kind of like this. If you said that Trump is a fascist, that would be a lie. If you said the Republicans are the party of, of neo-Nazism, that's a lie. But if it turns out that you, the accuser, are the actual perpetrator uh, of those things, you are the real fascist, and you're actually calling your intended victim the fascist, then you are transferring responsibility from yourself where it truly belongs onto someone else. In fact, the someone else that is not only the innocent party, but the party that's been fighting you all along. So notice that the Democrats were doing this with the race card. The mm -hmm. Democratic Party, for example, is the party of slavery, of segregation, of Jim Crow, of racial terrorism, of the Ku Klux Klan. And yet it's Democrats who point the finger at Republicans who fought them all along and say, you are the racist. You know, I, I consider myself fairly well read. And another thing that stuck out in your book, and it's probably in the first, I don't know, five, ten pages, was you made the statement that uh, slavery in this country, no Republicans own slaves. Only Democrats own slaves. And I didn't well, know that. I didn't. I mean, that was right at the beginning of your book, and I'd never, never read that before. Well, and, and I, I'm not surprised because it, doesn't, it is not in any textbook. It is. I had never seen that in any article. But I just realized through independent research that, of course, the Republican Party was founded in 1854. Right. So prior to that, there were Democrats and Whigs who right. both owned slaves. But once the Republican Party was founded, and that's why I picked the year 1860. In 1860, the year before the Civil War, I made the startling claim, no Republican owned a slave. And this is particularly remarkable because there were four million slaves in the country. And so my contention was every single one of those slaves was owned by a Democrat. And so I was sort of challenging the left to find counterexamples. I mean, had they found three Republicans who owned slaves, I'd have to take it back. But to date, more than a year after I made that statement, not a single counterexample has ever been produced. Uh, that, that was just, just startling to me. And I, I, I got to tell you, I've quoted you on that a couple of times <laughs> since reading the book. And uh, I have not been challenged on it either. So I attribute that to you. And, and nobody has yet been able to counter that let's take a little step toward fascism you know it, in reading everything and and hearing the news and reading the headlines uh i think a lot of us have a a wrong definition if you will of fascism versus socialism versus communism what is a fascist out there yeah so the reason that people have a wrong definition is because because of the big lie in other words since world war ii the progressives and the left, in order to make it seem like fascism and Nazism are right-wing, have sort of redefined what fascism and Nazism are. And so, for example, we'll hear things like, Trump is a fascist because he's an authoritarian. Now, you know, we've had authoritarian rulers since the beginning of time. I mean, going back to Alexander the Great, they obviously weren't all fascists. Or fascism, or Trump is a fascist because he's an ultra-nationalist. He wants to make America great again and so on. Well, the truth of it is that there are nationalists on the right and on the left. Gandhi was a nationalist. Mandela was a nationalist. In South Africa, Winston Churchill was a nationalist. Obviously, these people aren't fascists. So uh, the real meaning of fascism is very clear. In fact, it was articulated by the founder of modern fascism, which is Mussolini, who founded the first fascist regime in the world in 1922. 10 years before Hitler came to, more than 10 years before Hitler came to power. So Mussolini goes, 
everything in the state and nothing outside the state. And what he means by this is that the state is kind of like a single living organism, and every individual is a cell within it. So there's no individual rights. There's no consequence to the individual. The cell is only important to the degree it serves the organism. Now, my point is, hey, does that sound more like the platform of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party? <laughs> and that's the, the, the beauty of the book and your other books are similar, that you don't just make a claim about this. You give us the history. I mean, even the definition of left and right, you go clear back to where that started in France and and give us that that base uh, education and foundation for this thought. How does, I mean, was was Marx a fascist? Was Lenin a fascist? I mean, you talk a lot about uh, the the evolution, if you will, uh, or progressive of uh, progression of Russia in their political uh, uh, evolution. It, it, do they fall into that category as well? No, no. I wouldn't call either Marx or Lenin a fascist. Now, here's the main thing, that there was a crisis of Marxism at the end of the 19th century. None of Marx's major predictions came true. And so the intelligent Marxists began to scratch their head and say, something is wrong in Marx. Something, is, something needs to be radically modified. And out of this so-called famous crisis of Marxism came two offshoots, both from the left, two offshoots of Marxian socialism. The first was Lenin's Bolshevik revolution in Russia, and the other was Mussolini's fascism, which later metamorphosed into Hitler's national socialism. So the main difference between, let's say, Lenin and Hitler is that Lenin was an international socialist, and Hitler was, in fact, this is the name of his party, a national socialist. Right, right, right. Now, we got a, a couple minutes left. Uh, your book is extraordinarily timely. Uh, you spend quite a bit of time talking about the, the Antifa, the, the anti-fascists and the, the uh, techniques they, they use and stuff. They've actually been around for quite a while as well, haven't they? Yes, the um, the fash the Antifa today. If you look at them, I mean, in their black costumes and their in their masks, uh, carrying weapons, using political intimidation against their critics and their enemies, uh, you know, driving speakers off the campus. I mean, this is exactly what Mussolini's black shirts, who by the way also dressed in black, also wore masks, also right. carry weapons, and Hitler's brown shirts in the 30s. There's a great similarity between what these groups are doing. The only difference is that the old fascists were proud to call themselves fascists, whereas the new fascists call themselves anti-fascists. <laughs> well, and, and like you said, it's just extraordinarily timely. What, at the end of the book, your final chapter is called Denazification, and you talk about some of the things we can do. Now, you, you're doing a great job of exposing this with your book, but we're not all writers and and uh, uh, as articulate and knowledgeable, uh, what can we do to unmask, to expose this fascism out there? Because one of the things you talk about is it kind of takes over just from a, a belief it's not going to take over and a certain amount of complacency. 
Yeah, I think the great uh, conservative uh, failure, if you will, has been to allow the large megaphones of the left, in other words, acad the academy, the media, and then Hollywood, which encompasses the whole entertainment industry, to become dominated by the left. Because that's how you can get away with the big lie when you control these megaphones. Mm -hmm. Now, the solution to it is really simple. Step one, to be informed. Step two, to use what influence you have. I mean, people will say, oh, I only have 50 friends on Facebook. Well, yeah, but they've got 50 friends on Facebook. So, in other words, people don't realize the degree to which they can disseminate information. The third thing is simply to enforce the law. I mean, by and large, look, that the white supremacist who drove his car into that poor woman crossing the road, he's going to get his comeuppance. Now, I think that all these, these inauguration disruptors and rioters, you know, they're arrested for felony rioting, which carries a penalty of five to ten years. But from the left's point of view, gee, they think, you know, we're noble protesters. You know, we'll spend the night in jail so that we can get out in the morning as a martyr and go on MSNBC. You know, no. I'd like to see the law applied equally across the board. Well, and, and you of all people uh, have been uh, subject to a less than objective application of the law in your own life. I mean, if if uh, some of these people had the same same experience, the same judges going after them, uh, it might be a little bit different. You did talk uh, about getting Republicans in, voting Republicans, getting Republicans on the Supreme Court. Um, I, I, I just wanted to ask you about that in, in conclusion, that it, it, it seems like the Republicans, a significant amount of them, are attacking uh, President Trump right alongside the Democrats. Is, is, uh, how do we change that? Do we need different Republicans in office? Well, I think a lot of it uh, is not just that. I mean, Trump is a little bit out there. He is an outsider. I do think that the Republican primary was a little too fratricidal for my taste. But nevertheless, the main problem is that these guys like McConnell, Paul Ryan, they're terrified of the media. They don't know how to respond to the media, and they feel that if the media put them in their sights and really began to go after them, using its full power of humiliation and ridicule, that these people would be so destroyed that their own party would bury them. And so it's fear of the media, I think, that, that, that drives a lot of the invertebrate behavior in the Republican Party. Well, Dinesh, uh, this has been... Uh, a real treat for me, as always. I read everything you put out. I love your books. Uh, appreciate you. Uh, by the way, you autographed my book. I appreciate that. <laughs> I got to put that out there. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Author of The Big Lie, Exposing the Nazi Roots of the American Left. Uh, terrific book. We're going to put it up on the website and Facebook and get it out there and, and try to do our part at unmasking this and and uh, seeing what we can do. But I really appreciate your time this evening away from your family. And uh, as always, I appreciate the work you're doing for us. Thank you so much. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you. We'll talk again soon. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. One of the things I wanted to talk about, uh, since it is a, an economic show, is the Attorney General in uh, Texas has received hundreds, hundreds of complaints about price gouging. 
And every time we have a natural disaster like this or uh, a lot of people in need or something, it always comes up about price gouging. And most states, many states, has laws against price gouging. And so I wanted to talk about that a little bit because the bottom line is price gouging is actually a good thing in these disasters. I know that sounds harsh and cold, okay, but let me explain. Anytime you have a limited supply of something and you have an overwhelming demand of that something, okay, you know, I mean, economics, uh, it's about supply and demand. So when you have an overwhelming demand, how do you satisfy the demand? You satisfy the demand by raising prices. Now, there's a emotional content to this. And what have I always said about emotional content? Emotional contents are expensive. I first saw this story about uh, a news team doing a story about hotel rooms. And they wanted more hotel rooms and the price was too high, so they got fewer motel rooms. Well, then they decided to cry about it and do a story on air about price gouging. Well, if they didn't raise their prices, the news crew would have taken all the rooms they wanted. And the fact is, there were citizens of the community and needed a place to stay. So by raising the price, the news team took fewer rooms, leaving more rooms available for other people. It's the same way with water, same way with food, everything. Now in Texas, there's significant penalties if you price gouge during a crisis like this. So what happens? What happens? Product runs out. You can't buy it at any price. If gas is $3.50 a gallon, that's eh, high. $2.50 a gallon. And the gas station is allowed to raise that to $10 a gallon then he's going to run out of gas and he's not going to get any more. I'm not saying that business shouldn't think about the social aspect of their company. What I'm saying is the social aspect of a company should be to make a profit. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. To an economy of one with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Daniel J. Eikenson. He is the trade policy expert at the Cato Institute, author of dozens of papers on trade policy focusing on U.S. China trade relations, bilateral and multilateral trade agreements and institution, globalization, U.S. manufacturing, and trade politics. He's also the co author of the book Anti Dumping Exposed The Devilish Details of unfair trade law. Dan, welcome back to An Economy of One. Thanks for having me on the show, Gary. I appreciate it. it. You know, I think last time we talked, I forget when it was, but we were neck deep in in TPP talks, I think. (laughs) And, uh, you know, President Trump kind of threw a wrench in the gears there. Now we got NAFTA. Mm -hmm. And NAFTA's been around for 20-some years, I think, back in the 90s is Mm -hmm. when it started. And... uh, 
now we're gonna gonna renegotiate that and and uh i'm a free trade kind of guy and and uh don't have have too much of a problem with uh worldwide uh economics one what what has nafta done over the last 20 years what is it really is it tariffs what what is it what's Mm -hmm. it done and and then we'll get into the the president's attitude on nafta okay sure well, the, the North American Free Trade Agreement uh, was uh, negotiated uh, between the George H.W. Bush administration and the Clinton administration. It was signed uh, in 1993 and went into force in 1994. And it was the purpose of it was to uh, enlarge the North American market to make it easier to facilitate uh, trade in goods and services, cross-border investment, uh, and to cultivate sort of a North American production platform. And you know, I. I think it's been pretty successful uh, on all those fronts. Trade has, in more than real terms, uh, has well over doubled. It's up 125 percent uh, since 1993. Investment is up uh, a, a similar amount, and and our economies are very highly integrated. And but you know, NAFTA from the outset was. Um, uh, sort of in the crosshairs of skeptics, mm-hmm. particularly uh, labor groups, anti-corporation, anti-capitalism groups, and, and and some on the right as well who are concerned about U.S. sovereignty issues and things like that. And um, you know, several presidents have uh, or candidates, so, uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton and uh, John Edwards, back in 2008, each promised to reopen NAFTA to make it fairer to U.S. workers, and um, and then Trump kind of. Uh, uh, glommed onto that uh, as well. Uh, but the, the, what's interesting here is uh, most of the changes being sought by the United States uh, uh, are going to make NAFTA look a lot more like the TPP <laughs> than, than what uh, the, you know, the labor groups or the anti-corporation groups would like to see. So, so NAFTA was really a uh, taking down of barriers between Canada, Mexico, and the United States versus a series of tariffs and and that kind of stuff, right? Yeah, most most tariffs on on products are are at zero already between the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Um, but there are now, you know, there as tariffs have come down worldwide because of trade agreements and because of uh, you know the GATT and the WTO. Um, we now see we, we focus a little bit more now on what are called behind the border barriers or non tariff barriers, which are regulatory in nature uh, rules that might um, uh, you know discriminate against uh, foreign companies or imported products and and so trade agreements the scope of them has 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 widened and as a result, trade agreements have become a little bit more. Um, controversial because it's you know everybody can sort of wrap their their brains around well tariffs are just taxes and if we get rid of them mm-hmm. products can be lower priced and consumers and households will have more resources uh, but when you start talking about regulatory harmonization and uh, you know rules on intellectual property or environment or labor uh, you, you you start running into other interest groups who don't know a whole lot about trade or haven't been all that interested in trade in the past but but have their own thoughts on on what what we should do with it and so and, and to some extent some of the ideas for this NAFTA renegotiation 
Association, in my opinion, would, would undermine NAFTA in the sense that they're trying to expand its coverage. Uh, you know, the Canadians want uh, gender rights or indigenous rights. And, mm. you know, trade agreements have worked when it's pretty clear what the objectives are supposed to be. Uh, but when you start getting into all these other social things, um, I, 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 not that I disagree with the objectives, but I don't think they belong in trade agreements. Now, it seems like we've been hearing from President Trump, and he seems to be obsessed with trade deficits. Mm-hmm. And, and we've talked to a lot of people, a lot of economists, about trade deficits, and the opinion seems to be pretty much the same across the board. An imbalance of trade, not necessarily a bad thing for the United States, is it? No, it's it's really not. I mean, so there are two ways to, to look at this. One would be to look at the overall uh, U.S. trade account with the world, and the United States has run a trade deficit with the rest of the world for 40 two straight years. Mm -hmm. Uh, Shortly after Nixon took us off the gold standard, I think the rest of the world was looking for safe investments, and so they sent their savings to the United States to invest in companies and equities and and corporate uh, debt and government debt, and and that all undergirded U.S. economic growth. Uh, But uh, it also created a situation where Americans were buying more goods and services from foreigners than foreigners were buying from, from Americans. And there's really nothing wrong with that. And I think to just look at the trade deficit in isolation from the capital account surplus that we have uh, is only to look at half half of the situation. But where Trump really uh, defies economics and where most uh, economists have an issue with Trump and and Peter Navarro and Wilbur Ross is his view that um, trade is a zero-sum game, exports are our points, imports are the foreign team's points, the trade account is a scoreboard. If we have a bilateral deficit, that means we're losing at trade, and of course we're losing because the foreign team is cheating. And and that has been driving the (laughs) the initiatives of this administration. Uh, It's misguided. And, um, you know, there's some talk about, you know, one of the objectives that the USTR, the U.S. Trade Representative, put out for these negotiations is to reduce the U.S. trade deficit. And there's concern that that they're going to be negotiating to actually put in sort of trigger mechanisms so that if after year one or two or three of of NAFTA 2.0, we don't, you know, reduce the trade deficit with Mexico by X percent, then new provisions kick in. Uh, it, It makes no sense because if the provisions aren't set in stone and they're, they're conditional like that, it, there, there isn't going to be the investment that you'd expect, and right. companies aren't going to invest in the relationships. So it would, it would undermine the agreement, and it's, it's a misguided uh, uh, pursuit. You know, the thing that, that I think some people don't realize is when, when a company in America or Canada or Mexico agrees to do business across the border – Uh, they have to think in terms of hundreds of millions of dollars and years into the future. And if you don't know what the rules are going to be next year, makes it hard to write that check, doesn't it? Yes, it absolutely does. And, and, and that's one of the major concerns that businesses have now. You know, uh, Trump originally said he wanted to pull the United States out of NAFTA, like mm-hmm. he pulled us out of the TPP. Then he, I guess he relented and said, okay, we'll renegotiate it, but he seemed, seemingly to make it 
you know, more, more, more stringent or more, quote-unquote, fair, fair to U.S. workers. But business uh, was really concerned about, you know, sort of the Hippocratic Oath. You know, first do no harm. You want to renegotiate this. We have these very important integrated uh, supply and production chains. Uh, about 40 cents of every dollar of imports from Mexico is U.S. value-added. So it's wow. it's U.S. products that have been processed there coming back, and products cross the border multiple times before they're sold to mm-hmm. to the uh, to the uh, end, end consumer. So uh, business is concerned. Look, there are things that can be improved in NAFTA. It was it was uh, written 25 years ago, uh, before the internet was uh, an important uh, uh, tool, before e-commerce, and so it, the, NAFTA can afford to be updated to make it you know, bring it into the 21st century. But in that process, let's make sure that we preserve the things that have been working. Uh, and I, I, I'm of the view that 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 is going to happen. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of anti-trade rhetoric from Trump and from his administration. Uh, but I think they're slowly coming to the realization that uh, if they uh, try to dictate rules to to um, you know affect the trade accounts uh, and and to, to tilt the playing field in favor of the United States, there will be repercussions for U.S. companies that rely on imported intermediate goods and for U.S. exporters against whom uh, retaliation will be targeted. Now I can see where. One area where our trading partners could possibly cheat, and you wrote a little bit about this uh, that I read the other day, and that is currency manipulation. I, you know, in my experience, I've been in economics for 30 plus years and in finance, I haven't seen a lot of currency manipulation uh, with Mexico or Canada. Is, Is that a big deal? It's uh, it's not really a big deal with respect to, to those countries. Um, in fact, I think currency manipulation is a bit of a red herring. Um, there, you know, the textbooks that, that you know you studied in in college uh, will tell you that if your currency is undervalued, you're going to uh, export more and import less, and, uh, and and vice versa. And so the United States has had issues with Japan and China over the years, and has led that these governments are engaging in currency market interventions that drive down the value of their currency so that they can export more to the United States. The, the, the problem with those theories is that in this era of globalization where you have supply chains where you know 50% of the value of our imports from China is not Chinese value, it's imports from other countries processed or snapped together in China. Oh, okay. so, so, so when their currency is undervalued, their costs of production are higher. And when the currency value increases, uh, it goes uh, the, the the cost of inputs goes down, so they can lower the price for export. Anyway, it, it hasn't really manifested itself so uh, clearly in, in the trade numbers. I don't think it's something we need to react to. Uh, but the reason that the administration is talking about inserting this in NAFTA, even though Canada and Mexico are not culprits, is to set a precedent so that for future trade negotiations, the, these provisions will exist. There was a lot of debate over whether or not there would be currency manipulation provisions in the TPP, mm-hmm. and the, the, the provisions that ultimately prevailed were uh, were fairly mild, which was to my liking. Uh, but uh, th- these provisions could uh, end up uh, prescri- prescribing um, penalties if foreign governments are found to be manipulating their currency. I wanted to touch on one other thing. One of the things that President Trump has talked about 
And I haven't heard much in the last, I don't know, eight minutes or so about it. But he's talked a lot about border taxes and, and taxing cars that come in and parts and, and that kind of stuff. Is, is that a, a negotiating technique for President Trump? Or does he just not understand what that would do to our economy and our consumer prices? There was a lot of discussion about this earlier in the year, um, and, you know, it was actually an idea originated by uh, congressional Republicans okay. um, to overhaul our tax code. Part of that, one of the components was to, um, you know, apply a border tax similar to what many of our trading partners do with the trading partners that have value-added tax systems, mm-hmm. uh, which, which we really don't. Um, and uh, it, it was consistent with Trump's idea of sort of penalizing companies that outsource and, and taxing their products as they come back in. And I think that that, uh, that idea certainly in, in the tax reform debate in Congress has, has been abandoned by the Republicans. Uh, tr- Trump may still uh, you know, threaten retribution against companies that outsource or that uh, you know import semi-finished products uh, from from Mexico. But I, I don't see you know. The, I think it's dawning on him and his advisors uh, what the costs to the U.S. economy would be if we were to engage in something like that. Yeah, that's kind of his his uh, negotiating style, isn't it? I mean, he kind of throws something absurd out there. I mean, I saw. Uh, I don't know, today or yesterday, something where, where Trump uh, tweeted, which drives me nuts, but he tweeted, we may have to terminate NAFTA. Right. Now, is that one of those, you know, uh, playing a Trump card, kind of, no pun intended, playing a, uh, a card that you really have no intention of uh, following through on? I mean, is that just kind of a, a line in the sand or a threat out there? Yeah, I, I don't think there's much credibility to it at all, uh, particularly because he's he's used that threat <laughs> on several several different fronts, uh, including in the NAFTA uh, a few times. Yeah. Uh, a, a few months ago, before the renegotiation was launched, he he said, "Okay, I'm I'm, I'm tired of this. We are we're withdrawing from NAFTA." And finally, after you know several months of silence, the business community reacted. You know, the yeah. business community was worried about getting tweeted at and seeing their stock stock values tank as a result of a, an early morning Trump tweet, they finally uh, said they, they got up. The ag community in particular went to Trump and said, uh, you're not withdrawing us from NAFTA. Do you know what that would do? <laughs> and so I, I don't think our trade partners attach much credibility to it. It's just uh, it's, it's Trump wanting to sound like he's uh, weighing in substantively in some way, but yeah. he's really not. It kind of reminded me of President Reagan in uh – Reykjavik sitting down for three minutes with the Russians and getting up and walking out. I mean, uh, that, that, that was negotiating technique there, but, uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you, uh, cry wolf in the theater one too many times. It, it kind of takes away your negotiating power. Anyway, <laughs> I think so. Yes. We've been speaking with Daniel J. Eikenson. He is the trade policy expert at Cato, uh, Institute. Once again, Dan, this has been a real treat for me. I appreciate all your, your time appreciate the work you do at cato and appreciate cato and all the work they do so uh keep it up and look forward to chatting with you again soon we'll do it again soon thanks a lot thanks dan have a good evening an economy of one with gary rathbun
back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Hurricane Harvey, one of the things that that uh, warms my heart in, in the stories coming out and the videos and stuff is uh, uh, the people saving their pets. And there are people rescuing pets. There was a a rescue place down there had over 200 dogs and cats, 200. And they're, they're shipping them out to different uh, humane society places around the United States to house them all. Why someone would leave their dog tied to a tree when floodwaters are coming is beyond me. But uh, uh, we got people out there saving these pets, rescuing them, and eventually they'll they'll find uh, owners worthy of uh, their affection. Read an interesting article, Switch Gears, that I think is entrepreneurial and uh, uh, something worth uh, looking into. We know about people going into nursing homes and assisted living and the amount of depression there, that kind of stuff. Um in Great Britain, they, they ran some experiments that combined daycare for four-year-olds and people over the age of 80. So in the same daycare, at the same time, they had 80-year-olds and four-year-olds. And they did it for six weeks. At the beginning of the six weeks, the... Eight people that were over 80, six of them were clinically depressed, and two of them severely depressed. And I won't—I don't have time to get into all the mobility experiments and and that kind of stuff. Uh, but they—they they could hardly stand on their own. Blah blah blah. And at the end of six weeks, after interacting with four-year-olds every day, um, none of them had any depression. No depression. Um, arthritis was um, easing up. Uh, they were getting up and down. They were sitting on the floor. They were playing with the kids. They were picnicking. Uh, one woman, uh, 80-some years old, was uh, running out in the yard with the kids and dancing and, and that kind of stuff. Now, the reason I bring this up is it was a six-week experiment. And... It went so well that they're going to the next stage and they're going to start setting up daycares that combine those two age groups. I find it fascinating that something that simple works. And as us baby boomers age, we need to keep that in mind. Um, Do I have time for the Browns? Probably not. Nah. They all kneeled during, a bunch of them kneeled during the, the national anthem. Other ones put their hand on the guys that were kneeling in support. And uh, they, they feel bad and they're praying for all the uh, oppression around the world. We'll see how that works in their, their game. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time.
The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 